People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to another edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. And how is this for a book's title? Is it me or is it getting hot in here? Great expectations and boiling frogs in South Africa. I think you'll agree that if you were in a bookshop and saw a title like that, you'd be most intrigued, first of all, to pick it up and see what it's all about. And secondly, possibly even to buy it. Well, the author is Tom Eaton. And listen to this. He says, are we frogs in a boiling pot or a stressed but resilient nation trying to make sense of bizarre times? Are we being ruled by an African liberation movement or a 14th century Italian church? And why do SUV drivers look so confused? So let me tell you, you should probably know Tom Eaton explores these and other questions about modern life in South Africa with the razor-sharp, laugh-out-loud style that has made him one of South Africa's most beloved commentators. And he is a columnist for many, many publications. For example, a Business Day and Time Select columnist, and he's the author of various best-selling books, including The Davilius Code. Other books are among them Texas, The Wading, Twelve Rows Back, Some Mutterings from Tom Eaton, and Touchlines and Deadlines, all about cricket with Luke Alfred. Uh, Tom is here in the studio with me. Tom, welcome. You certainly are a busy lad. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. Yes. I was surprised at how many books you've actually published. So was I. <laughs> how many? Um, I actually, I actually had to count. Um, I think if you include sort of co- collections of things, I think this is my ninth. Oh, okay. Um, yes, but but this is a this is special in all sorts of ways, which is uh, which is why I'm I'm very proud of it. Okay, but we're going to talk. We're yes. going to dissect it. Yes, as they, say. <laughs> as they say. Um, talking about frogs, but we mm. won't dissect any frogs. But um, are most of your books, or would you say most of your books are, are, are they fiction or are they um, about facts? I've done, I've done both. Um, I've written three novels uh, and the rest are nonfiction, although I did do a sort of fake history of South Africa, which was <laughs> somewhere between fact and fiction. I took, I took real events and turned them sort of into absurd fictions. Um, so, yes, I enjoy both. And, um, you know, sometimes when you write about, about facts, it, it reads like fiction. Mm. Um, especially these days. Especially these days. Um, yes, as we made our way to the studio through through health checks and, and temperature readings and, yes. and biohazard you, suits. You're actually not supposed to be here, <laughs> but I think we're a good two meters apart. Yes, no, we're being the very, microphone. very careful. Um, but this particular book, you made it sound as though it's special. So before we start dissecting it, why do you think that this is particularly important? You know, as a columnist, um, my stock in trade is 800-word columns. And, and I love doing that, and it's a great privilege to do that. But in 800 words, you don't really have time to explore an idea. And you certainly don't have time to listen to your own, th- your own thoughts and feelings about where the thing is taking you. Um, an 800-word column is very much a small, short, sharp performance. There's no reflection. Whereas in this book, I didn't have a, a limit in space. It's turned out to be a, a conventionally you know, normal book. Um, but I just started writing. And so I really let the, the, let the ideas go where they took me. And the prose went where it took me. And so there are lots of little eddies and, and cul-de-sacs and sort of side, side alleys that I go down in this book. Um, and that was an enormous pleasure for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
What I think is interesting about what you've just said is obviously these ideas, which we will be exploring soon, have been on your mind because you've obviously given a lot of thought to this boiling frog thing, the uh, analogy thereof. Mm. So it must have been easy to write, but also, I presume, kind of cathartic. Very much so. You know, I think that when you um, engage with the news all the time, as I do um, in my for, for my job, as it were, um, the pervading sense is one of, of toxicity and exhaustion. Mm. Um, it's not fun to read the news every day, um, even though my job is to, to make light of it and to find the lighter side. Um, but it, it's, it's very toxic. And I think there's a pervading sense of... Um, uh, whether it's pessimism or an extreme forms despair or, or um, just a, a general sort of sense of, of where are we going and what's happening, where this frog in a pot metaphor has kept coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've, I've resisted it for a long time for various reasons. Um, I don't, I'm not prone to, to real despair in, as, as a person and in, in my normal life. And I thought, no, I don't want to be a frog in a pot. So I looked into it. And I realized, of course, first thing is, you know, there's this there's the story of this experiment where a, a mad scientist puts a, a frog in a pot of water and slowly turns the heat up. And as the heat rises and rises and steam begins to rise, the frog gets a little bit agitated, but it doesn't get out um, until the, the water starts boiling. And a second later, the frog flops over and is stone dead. And I could see why this was such an appealing analogy to many people. Um, it speaks to a sort of um, passive, passive state of, of persecution in a way that, you know, well, what can one do? What, you know, um, one is a victim of circumstance. Until I actually read a little bit about it and I discovered that that analogy, that, that experiment is, is not really true. Um, there was an experiment done or many experiments done on frogs back in the, back in the past by early sort of biologists and physiologists and certainly some frogs did sit passively in the water until until the water boiled and they expired. But the key detail that's been left out of those histories is that those frogs that just passively boiled to death had had their brains surgically removed. <laughs> <laughs> Dear my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's quite an important detail that was left out. <laughs> hugely important. <laughs> <laughs> and the frogs that hadn't had their brains surgically removed, of course, behaved like sensible frogs and, and got the hell out of the water as soon as it became uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and the point, you know, I used by, by citing that analogy early in my book is not to encourage people to flee. I'm not suggesting that we are the frogs that should bail out of a pot. But more that we should interrogate the um, the appealing analogies, the appealing metaphors that seem to be true, that seem to describe our situation, but perhaps aren't actually that useful or accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I set out to write this book, um, okay. premised on this idea. And is it, Tom, is it a book that um, is meant to give courage and confidence to people, or is it a book that's going to make us terribly depressed? Um, I think it's going to do... Both. Okay. Um, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of courage and confidence, um, I don't know if it's going to so much give courage and confidence or make one depressed as I hope provide perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we spend, or let me speak for myself, I spend quite a lot of time getting sort of angry and frustrated by things and events and the news, or at least I did, until a year or two ago when I had the sort of epiphany that where I realized I was reacting to things that maybe didn't deserve the reaction I was giving them. I was being sucked in to the, the sort of um, received wisdom of what one should do rather than what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in this book I've tried to provide a chance for people to gain some perspective, to not just react in the way we always do, not just to have the same arguments we always have and the same fights we always have, 
there's a very there's a very um short and sharp chapter that I enjoyed very much about detaching a little bit from for example the internet um you know there's a there's a lot of toxicity there and one one feels after a few hours on the internet that you should be there that you should be having these arguments but really you shouldn't mm-hmm. you should just switch off and go for a walk um so <laughs> not, uh, and not trape through facebook exactly exactly so in a small way uh, that's an example of what i'm talking about mm-hmm. okay now before we go into more detail in the book Let's see what music you've chosen. Tom, what, what is your first piece of music you're going to share with us? Well, my first one has probably been played on Fine Music Radio more than anything else, and certainly listeners will know it all too well. Not all too well. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> my first piece <laughs> is Bach's Air on the G-String. And the reason I chose that is simply because I think it's medicinal. I think one can always benefit from hearing it. And I grew up in a in a family with lots of music always being played. My mother adores classical music, so it was always... Um, Bach and Mozart and, and Baroque. There was Telemann and there was Vivaldi. My father was was a huge fan of of very eclectic pop pop music. So oh. it was everything from the Beatles and Ray Charles, the Beach Boys, through to the MJQ. Um, you, you know, you name it. It was it was playing. Mm-hmm. So I have this very sort of eclectic taste. Um, but Bach and and certain, particularly this piece sort of shines through as a beautiful calm. Sort of ray of of magnificence through all of that music. Calm in the chaos, as exactly. we say. Exactly. <laughs> fun music, really. Here it is: the air from the orchestral suite number three by Bach.
That's the second movement, the air from the orchestral suite number three by Bach, played there by the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Richard Cockett. Earned the nickname Air on a G-String because a violinist apparently wanted to play the whole thing on the G-String of a violin, a solo violin. Anyway, it's fondly known as an Air on the G-String. It was the first choice of my guest, Tom Eaton. And we're talking about his latest book, Is It Me or Is It Getting Hot in Here? Great Expectations and Boiling Frogs in South Africa. One of the, I haven't got right through the book yet, sure. so I tried, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but the very first chapter, Great Expectations, also takes your thought process uh, uh, along this line where you talk of the Paris syndrome, mm. how easily people are disappointed, how easily our expectations are, are trashed. Yes. So that obviously is something important to you. Yes, well, you know, I discovered this thing called Paris syndrome, which which may or may not exist. There's still some question around around its its veracity, but certainly there seems to be this idea that every so often uh, a visitor to Paris, specifically, and it also seems to happen in other um, iconic places, um, Jerusalem, Mecca, a visitor to Paris arrives and completely loses their mind. They have a complete nervous breakdown and have to be sort of airlifted back to their country of origin. The the things I read suggested that this mostly happens to young Japanese visitors, Japanese women in particular. Um, the theory being that it is a sort of extreme form of culture shock because they've grown up believing that Paris is like Amelie from the film or, you know, it's just going to be mimes and, and people with baguettes in bicycles, <laughs> you know, baskets of bicycles riding past and nuns and the, the bells of, you know, uh, churches ringing. And then they get there and there's graffiti and traffic and fairly um, rude Parisians. Um, I remember going to an, an information kiosk and saying in very halting, bad French, hello, you know, may I speak English? And this man simply said, no, and slammed the shutters <laughs> closed. Um, they are famous for that, or infamous, I right. should say. So they arrive there and, and are expecting one thing and they get catastrophically different thing. And they they can't cope, mm-hmm. um, and I got I got to thinking about you know my own expectations of things, and and I realised that I was suffering from a certain form of Paris syndrome here as well. Specifically, I was expecting um, our politicians to be politicians because they were called politicians. It, that's what their job description said. So how I, naive would be? How bel- <laughs> well, the thing is, it turned out to be naive. Yeah. Um, you know, just because it says something on the box doesn't mean that is the thing. And um, and so I realised slowly that. Uh, once one can understand that one's projections and expectations are exerting a powerful influence on one, um, reality starts looking a little bit a little bit different. Once once you can start realizing that just because somebody says I am in government, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are there to govern. Mm-hmm. But then this means that using the Paris syndrome thing mm-hmm. again. Um, so what you're saying is that we're expecting more. From the government than we're getting we're expecting we're expecting them to be politicians right we're expecting them to be a government yes and um and they're simply not um i, I go into some detail in the book as to what i think they are um <laughs> and and luckily it is repeatable here um but yes i mean i i use the the analogy of or the comparison with the the catholic church of the 14th century um there are a lot of parallels quite alarming parallels and, uh, you know, in terms of accountability, in terms of what they're for. And, you know, with the best will in the world, yes, the, the church of the, of the medieval period did a lot of good, but it was there for itself. It was mm-hmm. there for the advancement of its own ambitions. And certainly material wealth played an enormous role in that. Um, and so I make this analogy in the book, the, draw this parallel in the book between the ANC and, frankly, the medieval church. 
And once you start to think of it in those terms, all sorts of things make sense. You know, the fact that disgraced politicians are never sent away. They're sent to the provinces briefly, in terms of my analogy, given a small parish somewhere far out, until the scandal dies down, and then they come back to Rome. Um, And I think uh, thinking of it in that way starts making sense, but also allows one's personal outrage and anger to be tempered with a different perspective. You know, once, once you see that happening, you don't go, but this is a terrible thing for a politician to do. You think, well, that's business as usual for a, for a, a member of the political clergy. Yes. Whereas it shouldn't be, as we know. Sure, a yeah. proper government wouldn't do of that. Of course, of course. Um, and it's all, as you say, for self-aggrandizement mm. and all that. So in that respect, I think reading this book is going to, I presume, you hope, make people stop and think and maybe give a number of people an epiphany or I two. hope so, yeah. Epiphany would be, would be magnificent. If I can cause epiphanies, that's <laughs> job done. <laughs> and have you always been kind of politically aware? In You know, you spoke about how much news you listen to and all that. Have you always been, since a young man, a young writer, very politically aware? I think I was politically aware in quite an unsophisticated way. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I, for whatever reason, I became morbidly fascinated with the Second World War as a young child. Uh, and not in a sort of little boy wanting to shoot things way. I, I I really saw it as a thing of great horror and dread and awfulness. And I think I became quite interested in the abuses of power, the the, the excesses of totalitarianism. Um, and then, of course, I also had a had a morbid fear and certainty that as soon as I turned eighteen, I was going to be sent to the border and killed in a bush. Um, I knew this to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that, of course, formed a lot of my thinking around what I was being told. You know, mm-hmm. as, a young, as a young boy, as a child in the 1980s, I was being told that everything was great. Whereas I thought, no, hang on, I'm going to be shot in the bush when I turn 18. How is everything great? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I think there were these sort of unformed political views or feelings which slowly coagulated into something more coherent, you know, as an adult. Because um, and then writing has been your life, isn't it? I think mm. You were at UCT. Mm. You did literature, English literature. Yeah, yeah. So it has been a fascination and a life for you. Yes, um, very much so. Um, you know, I grew up in a house full of books. Um, my father read to my sister and, and me almost obsessively until we begged for mercy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. We we he developed in us an extraordinary capacity just to listen to yeah, yeah. to stories and, and literature. So yes, I was always surrounded by writing. Um, I always say, well, I went to UCT and I studied literature. I didn't really study literature. I sort of looked at the front cover of the literature and I, I did the minimum of reading of the literature. <laughs> and really what I wanted to do was just write things. Yeah. So I, I, I managed to take a path through, through my university career where I was just writing, really, doing the creative writing option, doing the, the BA, do, uh, doing the, the honors and then the masters. Um, so I think some of the literature rubbed off on me. I hope it did. But must have, Tom. <laughs> we can only hope. Yes, let's have another music break. What have you got for us next? Well, the next one, um, speaking of you know literature and politics, um, I, I love how, how music and, and specifically songs can tell stories in a way that, that plays do and you know that in a two-minute song you can, you can have a, a whole play. And my next song is, is the wonderful um, Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry. Uh, which, apart from having this haunting melody, which is just so full of sinister um, hints and regret and, um, and a, a sort of taste of a hot, sultry southern summer, um, it also has this wonderful story where 
you know, what, what happened? I mean, something awful happened, but what, what was it that happened? And so for me, this is like a beautiful musical play. Sleepy, dusty Delta day I was out chopping cotton And my brother was baling hay And at dinner time we stopped And walked back to the house to eat And mama hollered at the back door Y'all remember to wipe your feet And she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And Papa said to Mama as he passed around the black-eyed peas, Well, Billy Joe never had a lick of sense. Pass the biscuits, please There's five more acres in the lower 40 I got to plow And Mama said it was a shame about Billy Joe anyhow Seems like nothing ever comes to no good up on Choctaw Ridge Flowers 
Choctaw Ridge And drop the men to the muddy water Off the Tallahatchie Bridge There you are, that's the Ode to Billy Joel by Bobby Gentry. And another choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, the author and columnist Tom Eaton. We're talking about his new book with this wonderful title, Is It Me or Is It Getting Hot in Here? Great Expectations and Boiling Frogs in South Africa. But I just want to find out more about you, Tom. Mm. You've spoken about having a musical background with your family Mm -hmm. and reading a lot. Mm. Um, So... You went to university knowing that you were going to be a writer. And mm. is that what happened? Did you go straight into getting jobs as a um, journalist? Well, I was, I was fantastically lucky. You know, I think, I think luck plays such an enormous role in people's, in people's lives. And I was, I was supremely lucky in that I, I sort of fell from one thing into the next thing. And while I was at university, you know, I, w- when you're 22 or 23 and you're doing a creative writing masters, you assume that you're going to write the great South African novel and then become terribly famous. And that, that's not how anything works at all in the real world. Um, it's like the Paris syndrome. Exactly. I was, <laughs> I was rotten with Paris syndrome as a, as a young graduate. Um, but while I was, I was writing the great South African novel, um, which you probably haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, I have to say. I, I fell into... into paid writing work you know it was editing sports content on a website uh, it was that sort of thing and and at the time i thought well this is just this is just the side thing i'm mm-hmm. actually a, an important novelist mm-hmm. um and then next thing i was writing opinion pieces about sport and then suddenly it was columns in a newspaper about sport and and sport and politics and so somehow you know having decided that i was a novelist it turned out i was actually a columnist um and you know 20 years later here i am and i've realized that you know the the novel i i love i loved writing the novels i've written they're a lot of fun to do um but uh no if i had to say i'm a i am a a columnist now you mentioned sport and all that because apparently May I say that it seems to me as though you're a little bit of a cricket fan. Yes, very much so. I mean, a huge cricket fan. Huge cricket fan, <laughs> yes. And you wrote a book about cricket with Luke Alfred. Well, that was actually a collection of sports writing in general. But because we were both big uh, cricket fans, I think we stuffed it as full of cricket writing as we could. Um, <laughs> you know, we threw in a bit of boxing and horse racing because you have to. But uh, <laughs> the <laughs> most of it was cricket, yeah. Okay. And w- that's the one that's called, what is it called? That's called Touchlines and Deadlines. Touchlines and yeah, Deadlines. Yeah. And do you follow, you're still following cricket? You're still you know, I must avid? Con- I must confess, the, the, the flame has died down slightly. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's awful. It's awful. And I... And I don't want to go into it in too great detail because I don't want to infect cricket lovers with my own growing apathy. Um, but it's, it's terrible. It's like falling out of love. It's awful. Um, okay, but I'm going to try a question and you can just sure. say, no, I'm not going to answer sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. Is it because of the standard of the game or the standard of playing anything to do with the game? Or is it just your own uh, res- response? Um, I think it's a little bit of the standard of the game. Having said that, I'm keenly aware that Every single cricket fan in the world or sports fan in the world believes it was better when they were younger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's probably not true. I'll tell you what it was. And maybe maybe your, your listeners will stay uninfected. <laughs> but I was watching, I was writing a, a, quite a technical analysis of A.B. de Villiers. Best batsman in the world. He was doing extraordinary things. I was, I was really getting into it. And I was watching him and watching him and watching footage. And I watched him hit a shot, you know, some outrageous shot into the stands. And I suddenly realized... My God, that's not a cricket shot. That's a hockey shot. 
He's just got down on one knee and he's flicked this ball like a hockey player into a net that happens to be 12 rows back in the stands. And at that moment, cricket, which had been this beautiful gladiatorial thing of a bowler running in and then a beautiful batsman playing beautiful shots, turned into hockey for me. With just happened to be one player standing still in the middle of the field, but playing mm-hmm. hockey shots. And since then, I have unfortunately not been, to, I haven't been able to see anything but hockey. <laughs> so, Even with other players? Yes, yes. No, and, and now it's just, it's just sort of three-dimensional, three, 360-degree hockey, um, which is awful, awful. Yes. You know, I grew up idolizing Brian Lara, one of the most beautiful batsmen of all time. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful that I enjoyed it in the 90s and 2000s, not seeing it as hockey. Um, but now I see it as hockey. So I apologize to any listeners who are now going to start thinking of, in terms of hockey. I urge you to rush out and just watch Lara on YouTube and, and cleanse your okay. brains. You'll yeah, be you'll okay. be okay. <laughs> did you ever play cricket, Tom? I did. Um, very badly. Oh. Exceptionally badly. My nickname is Chucky because of my bowling action. Um, <laughs> I'm accused of bending the elbow. Um, yes, I accidentally once went to a, a, a first team practice at UCT. I was in the fifth team. I accidentally went to the first team, and and uh, it was terrifying. Uh, it okay. was one of the more frightening moments of my life. <laughs> so the less said, the better. Cricket, I suppose. We could even make analogies of cricket because, mm-hmm. again, the Paris syndrome comes mm, up. Absolutely, it? yeah. Your expectations with A.B. de Villiers right. were, were trashed. Yeah, and it changes, it ch- physically changes what you see. You know, mm. one's, the moment those projections drop away, you realize what you're actually seeing and hearing, and not mm-hmm. just with cricket, but, you know, with life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was the lovely phrase? We talk about uh, Paris syndrome, mm. but in your book, I think, in fact, it's in the first chapter, we talk about Paris syndrome. Mm. You came up with a lovely South Africanism to do with um, Paris. Yes. Well, I, I, I must apologize for the slightly crude language, but I, I realized that a South, a South African version of Paris syndrome I've called Paris poopstring, um, <laughs> simply because it causes certain, certain ructions and anxieties when one <laughs> feels these feelings. Yes. Well, let's relax with some more music, Tom. Mm. What have you got for us next? Number three. Well, the next one speaks very much to, to how I became a columnist. Um, and my sort of early early upbringing in terms of my relationship with, with comedy and um, storytelling and history. The next one is by a wonderful comic, now probably long forgotten, a sort of blue-collar American uh, funny man called Alan Sherman, who produced mm-hmm. a lot of comedy records in the, in the 50s and 60s. And this one is to the, to the tune of um, You Went the Wrong Way to St. Louis, but of course he's changed it to You Went the Wrong Way, Old King Louis. And it is a a satirical take on the French Revolution, um, which was one of the sort of many comedy things I used to listen to as a child, Peter Sellers and and, Mm. Dudley Moore and Peter Cook and those sorts of things. Um, But I thought this was a lovely example of a great tune, well sung, um, with with a deliciously sort of naughty twist on history. Louis the sixteenth was the king of France in 1789. He was worse than Louis the fifteenth. He was worse than Louis the fourteenth. He was worse than Louis the thirteenth. He was the worst. 
Prince Louis the first. <laughs> king Louis was living like a king, but the people were living rotten. So the people, they started an uprising, which they called the French Revolution. And of course, you remember their battle cry, which will never be forgotten. You went the wrong way, old King Louis. You made the population cry. Cause all you did was sit and pet with Marie Antoinette in your place at Versailles. And now the country's gone kablooey So we are giving you the air That ought to teach you not to spend all your time Fooling round at the Foley Berger If you had been a nicer king We wouldn't do a thing But you were bad, you must admit We're gonna take you and the queen Down to the guillotine And shorten you a little bit Came the wrong way, old King Louis, and now you ain't got far to go. Too bad you won't be here to see that great big Eiffel Tower or Bridget Bardot. To you, King Louis, we say fooey. You disappointed all of France. But then what else could we expect from a king in silk stockings and pink satin pants? You filled your stomach with chop suey And also crepe Suzettes and steak And when they told your wife Marie that nobody had breath She said let them eat cake We're gonna take you and the queen down to the guillotine It's somewhere in the heart of town and when that fella there is through with what he's gonna do, you'll have no place to wear your crown. You came the wrong way, old King Louis. Now we must put you on the shelf. That's why the people are revolting, cause Louis, you're pretty revolting yourself. You are the American comedian Alan Sherman. You went the wrong way, old King Louis, was his version of that. And another choice of my guest, Tom Eaton, the author and columnist. And we're talking about his new book, Is It Me or Is It Getting Hot in Here? Great Expectations and Boiling Frogs in South Africa. We've done the boiling frogs thing and taken mm. out their brains and all those horror mm. stories. But I, you mentioned um, the comedy thing. You also do a fair amount of script writing, don't you, for television and films even? Yes. Um I suppose by the standards of, of the industry, I do do my fair share. Um, <laughs> there's a chapter in this book in which I describe my screenwriting career as a sort of series of fits and starts. You know, unless you're actually writing a soap opera every week, you're not really a screenwriter. But yes, I've, I've been very lucky in that I've done a wide variety of, of scripts and things, and I, I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, it does come with its own unique frustrations. Any scriptwriter will tell you that, you know, their art is butchered by directors and, and mm. actors and that sort of thing. But that comes with the territory. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been fun and I've been very lucky. And I've, met, I've worked with very generous people. Mm -hmm. um, that's my experience of working in film and television. There are obviously the, a, few, a few prima donnas who are nightmares and provide funny stories after the fact. 
Um, but everyone has been extraordinarily generous and kind. And I think it's because everyone works under such pressure and for such small amounts of money. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no room for ego, for, for um, delusions of grandeur in the local film and TV <laughs> setup. <laughs> I sort of tripped myself up and crossed rails in that question because I meant... I, would, I mentioned comedy right. and then went straight to film scripts, implying that you write comedy, but I don't mean that. I meant a lot of your writing is humorous. Um, so obviously that's something that you feel A, yeah. is important, and B, you're awfully good at. <laughs> well, that's kind of you to say. Um, you know, comedy is so so subjective. Mm. Um, I, 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 I always love it when, when people get really angry with me. And there are a couple of people who dislike my work a lot, and they always say, you know, just, he's just not funny. And I, I wish they, they would cause themselves a lot less heartburn if they just said, I don't find him funny, <laughs> um, because it's all subjective. But yes, um, the, the comedic side of things, I think, comes from, again, a childhood spent with lots of comedy, lots of silliness. I grew up listening to The Goon Show. Mm-hmm. Um, How civilized. Very civilized. <laughs> um, I think it does have a civilizing effect on, on one. Um, also a mad effect. It gives you a sense of the ridiculous. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and, and as you and somebody who works in radio and your listeners will know, there is something special about listening to something rather mm-hmm. than seeing it on a Absolutely. screen. Absolutely. Um, and The Goon Show, I think for a child, where one's um, creative faculties are so immense still, you know, so unfettered and, and unchanneled, um, listening to The Goon Show is just, it's a, a trip. You know, it's an absolute trip. It's sort of hallucinogenic for a, for a 10-year-old. Yes. And those, I mean, I, I came to it quite late, probably when I was in high school, mm-hmm. the trick, listening to it on the old English service. And um, I remember, I wonder what a child, well, you might know mm. the answer to this, would have thought of all those weird sound effects that they kept coming up with. Right. Um, well, you just, I think the child's brain just creates something mm. immediately. Talk about the theater of the mind. Right. And so it was so rich, so absolutely rich. And mm-hmm. But it's interesting, you know, the, the little sounds that the brain turns into things. I remember one of the pieces of music that I grew up listening to was just the soundtrack, literally the soundtrack, the audio recording of The Sound of Music, which included the odd sort of bump and bang. And yes. <laughs> yes. And um, not only did I picture all, their f- all the, the nuns' faces because, you know, I hadn't seen the film, but uh, oh, that, the, the one who says she climbs a tree and scrapes her knee, that yes. nun looked that way, you know. She's a darling, she's a demon, she's a lamb. The one who says she's a lamb, I had a very clear idea of. So as a child, you... You know, the, the mind does fills in all the blanks for you. So I think it was a wonderful experience. And when you saw The Sound of Music, did you have a terrible Paris Syndrome reaction? I did. I did. Oh, no. No, no. It was, it was fine. But it, it somehow wasn't quite as good as what I'd imagined. <laughs> and um, the comedy thing as well, um, when you, are any of your, your books, your novels, mm. comedy? Uh, two of them are, um, although, although readers might disagree. Um, the f- my first one was called The De Villiers Code, which was a shameless uh, ripoff of The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> um, I was, I w- it was ordered from me. The Penguin got hold of me and said, will you, will you spoof The De Villiers Code? So I was happy to do. And that one is very silly, mm-hmm. extremely silly. And I think a lot of people enjoyed it. It, it sold very well. It was turned into a surprise bestseller. Then, because you always get signed up for two books, the second, the, the difficult second album mm-hmm. um, was called Texas and was... Uh, more of a story, less a comedy, and I think it confused some readers who, who expected, you know, silly nonsense, and didn't get it. But yeah, um, certainly the De Villiers Code was just farce, essentially. And you were that sort of shot you to fame, didn't it? It did a huge amount of publicity and good for you. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, 
to be fair, I think an enormous number of people bought it, assuming it was somehow connected legitimately to the Da Vinci Code. Because, mm-hmm. you know, at that time, remember, the Da Vinci Code was the pop culture Big, phenomenon. Yes. Um, and I know I got at least one letter from a furious reader saying, you know, I can understand why, why an author would plagiarize the Da Vinci Code. But that the fact that Penguin Books South Africa allowed you to plagiarize it, that is just beyond the pale. Um, <laughs> Another a lawyer from White River also wrote to my publisher saying it was buying that book was the worst mistake he'd ever made. And I thought, wow, that's a lawyer you want to get. I mean, <laughs> buying my book was the worst mistake he's ever made. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think uh, most people enjoyed it. Yes, absolutely. And your columns, I mean, I first, as I said earlier, I first got to know of you through your column when you wrote for The Times and The Times published yes. their daily yes. uh, newspaper. Yeah. And you had a column there. And, I mean, it's really quite a treat to read a columnist who takes your mind off the gruesome stories mm. of the day and yet somehow is satirizing them mm. at the same time. I think it's important for people. It's therapeutic. Yes, that's kind of you to say, and, and that's what I go for. Mm-hmm. I think there is a, a form of, of therapy involved, and if not for the reader, at least for me. Um, <laughs> yes. you As know, your latest book we right. discussed earlier. Yes. I mean, I get the impression that by the time I'm finished this book, it will be a form of cathartic experience just from what I've read so far and that you will make me possibly have an epiphany about this, that or the next thing. I hope so. I, I very much hope so. Um, and I think if, if just a few readers find a different way of looking at things that allows them to be less stressed, confused and angry, mm-hmm. then job done. I love some of your chapters and I'm just going to read some sure. of the titles because um, Great Expectations, that's where you spoke about the Paris mm-hmm. Syndrome, Laughing While Rome Burns, um, If Only They Didn't Wear Suits, How to Cook a Nightmare Apocalypse, A Better Afterlife for All, Love and Marriage, Politics and Sports, The Penalty of Death on Immigration, La Dolce Vita even. Mm. So they're intriguing titles and I can't wait to get into it. But now we're going to have another piece of music before we have to close down. Yes. So this piece is, again, will be familiar to your listeners. It's, it's something that goes back with me a long way. It's called the Ashokan or Ashokan Farewell. I encountered it in, while at high school. Um, there was a wonderful television series about the American Civil War, which sort of shot Ken Burns into the public eye as a director and, and TV maker. Um, and the Civil War was, uh, was a long and excellent TV miniseries that used this piece of music as its theme. And at the time, everybody thought, gosh, what a beautiful piece of music from the 1860s because it sounds so melancholy mm. and, and romantic. You know, it turns out it was written in 1985 in an effort to, to create a sort of faux Scottish lament, mm. uh, a little bit like Paul McCartney's Mull of Kintyre that everyone oh, thinks you was, go. you know, yes. written <laughs> 200 years ago. Um, and I and I love it for two reasons. Firstly, it's such a sweet melody. It's such a simple thing, just a violin and a and a guitar. It's it's very sentimental because I am a bit of a sucker for sentimental music. Um, but then it's also a wonderful reminder of just how beautifully tricky film and television music is. The the wonderful story it tells you and what it convinces you of. You mm-hmm. know. Um, and I and I love the fact that one can listen to this and think, gosh, now that is proper. 19th century music, um, and it was written in 1985. Yes, 85. <laughs> and of course, we've just lost Ennio Morricone. Absolutely. Who was a, I mean, he wrote the most extraordinary. I was glad to see him being really credited and raved about for the good, bad, and the ugly. Yes. Uh, which is regarded as, I think, one of the great Hall of Fame. Right. Themes. And isn't it interesting how one assumes that's just how the Old West sounded? Yeah, you, <laughs> you know, do. These, these strange dollars. He did yeah, them all. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's listen now to the Ashokan Farewell. 
gosh, it is a beautiful piece that I've also liked it for years, uh, Tom. Mm. The Ashokan Farewell, Jay Ungar and Molly Mason were the performance there. They, the actual original, that's mm. the original mm. version, the only one to listen to. <laughs> and a choice of my guest, Tom Eaton, here on Fine Music Radio and People of Note. And Tom, just as we near the end of the program, and before I just give another little plug to mm. your book, um, what are you going to do next? Was this your last big project? Is it... Me yes. Cotton here. Yes. This one uh, finished up. I finished it in, in sort of January, and then and then during lockdown, I had the great luxury of being able to go through the page proofs with nothing else to do. Yes. Um, so that was lovely, and I'm going to just see this out into the world and and be with it. You know, books have a shelf life of a, a couple of months, and mm-hmm. I'm going to sort of hold its hand during that time. Um, but yes, I'm I'm doing a bit of television work at the moment, and then I I have been sitting on a novel for ten years. Um, which I really should stop sitting on and start writing again. Um, I also want to write a play. Oh, um, have you done that before? I haven't. Um, I mean, other than, you know, at high school or that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But um, I would very much like to write just a, a fun good night out for, for audience members. Oh, um, so, yeah, I'll start doing that at some point. So, yeah, lots lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But mostly I'm just focused on this book right now. I'm focused on enjoying the process of this book entering the world. Yeah, often one gets a bit swept up in, in what next and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But I think if lockdown's taught me anything, it's how to just be in the moment. And Isn't so it interesting that you put it to bed just before lockdown? Yeah. I wonder if it was after lockdown, if you would have changed anything. But probably not. Probably not. No. Yeah. I mean, you can always change things. You know, mm. there are these nightmare stories of, of writers writing books for 50 years because they're always just changing <laughs> according to what happened last month. You yeah. know? So I'm, I'm happy that it ended when it ended. Okay. Well, it's called Is It Me or Is It Getting Hot in Here? And it's subtitled Great Expectations and Boiling Frogs in South Africa. And it's published by Tafelberg. And um, I suggest you go out and have a look because I'm certainly enjoying it hugely. And, Tom, it's been great talking to you, and I look forward to your – I haven't read the De Villiers Codes. So now you've, you've intrigued me. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to a read through that as well. But keep up the good work. Are you fairly busy? Um, I am. I write three columns a week, so mm-hmm. that keeps me off the streets. Right. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm very happy. I'm very grateful to have the, the gig I do have. Um, but, yeah, busy, busy and happy. And you live here in Cape Town. I do. I do, yeah. So it's all good. Okay. My guest on People of Note, Tom Eaton. And People of Note was brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.